Welcome once more to the race MotoGP podcast. MotoGP for 2020 is more than underway. The Hareth races are done. Two of 13 Grand Prix are done. And the searing, ridiculous heat of southern Spain in late July is finished with. And as we record this, just over a week ago, Fabio Quattararo had a single Grand Prix victory to his name, and that was in Moto2. And he was up against Marc Marquez's eight world championships, six of which in MotoGP, and Marquez's tally of 82 Grand Prix victories. But here and now, in the MotoGP World Championship, it's Fabio Quattararo 50, Marc Marquez nil point. Marc Marquez, he crashed in the opening round of the championship. He had then an operation on the Tuesday to work on his arm. He'd broken his humerus and had some nerve damage. He passed a medical on the Thursday. He rode on Saturday, 18 laps in the morning, 10 laps in the afternoon. But come qualifying, the reigning MotoGP world champion did an outlap and came straight back in. I had to try it, he said. We'll now never know what the head-to-head of Hareth 2020 would have been like, but you have to stay on the motorcycle. Toby Moody and Simon Patterson bringing you this podcast. Simon, you could have taken, we all could have taken huge amounts of money off everybody if we had bet them that Quattararo would have had two victories and Marc Marquez nil at this point in the season. We didn't have it in the script. No, we certainly did not, did we? I would have put money on Quattararo winning at least one of them, maybe two of them, coming away with 40-plus points from this weekend, no problem. But to have Marquez come away with zero points as well is exceptional given his history given his track record given how little he actually manages to crash in races and how consistent he is Uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in his time at the top of MotoGP and it has blown the rest of the season completely wide open I haven't seen this at the top of MotoGP and I started doing it 25 years ago um, you know, Valentino <laughs> crashed at Mugello in 2010 and he, he, he came back, you know, Mick Dewan crashed. He never rode a competitive motorcycle ever again. Um, this is still within the remit of Marc Marquez to relax at home for another week, 10 days before he then goes to Bruno in the Czech Republic and get himself together. I put a tweet out, didn't I, a couple of days ago that actually Marc Marquez won the championship by, what, five clear race wins worth of points last year. It's a shorter championship this year. He's still got a bit of a buffer, but that's presuming, Simon, that he would come back at 110%. He'll be good for Bruno, but will he be 110% or even 100? Nobody knows but him. Um, What do you think about the fact that Marc came back and, I quote, I had to try it. Hmm. I uh, I think my opinion's a little bit counter to most people's in that I've I've been quite vocal in saying that I think it was a stupid idea. Um, the injury to his arm was a really really dangerous one. The severity or the risk of uh, severe nerve damage had he crashed on it again was colossal. And I think what we always knew was going to happen happened in the end anyway because. 
it's just not possible to undergo surgery and be that competitive, you know, two, three days later, like like he tried to be. We saw Cal Crutchlow go under the knife on the same day as Mark in the same hospital with the same surgeon for a much less complicated, much less invasive injury. And even he couldn't finish Sunday's race. He pulled in uh, three quarters of the way through the race and only went back out again whenever the team told him there was only 13 people in the race and he could score some points by rolling around at the back. So I just, I'm, I'm, I get why Mark wanted to try, because uh, that's what racers do. They go out and race. But I'm quite surprised that no one else stepped in and said, mm, maybe just set this one out, mate. Yes, I, first of all, I totally agree with you. Uh, we were agreeing when we were speaking after Hareth won. And I just wish there was somebody to step in and say, Mark you're 27 and a half years old, you might lose your arm here. Or actually, a phrase that I came up with some years ago, uh, are you in full control of the motorcycle? And arguably, (laughs) the medical test that he passed on Thursday was potentially not good enough to ride the bike because he only did Saturday morning and and one complete circulation, didn't do a flying lap. In no. qualifying on Saturday afternoon. I know it's easy to be an armchair expert. I know, I know, I know. Uh, it, it, we mustn't fall into that very easy bear trap to get, Absolutely. To get bitten by it. But uh, it, it comes full circle to what? 15, 20 years ago when the concussion thing came in. Rugby, American football. Yes. Uh, yes. Wherever. You know, right, you've had a bang on the head. Right, you're out. No, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Honestly, I can, <laughs> I can, I can pop hoops all day. It's fine. No, 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 you're out. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a fine line. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so from, from what we understand, Mark's fitness test was doing 40 push-ups in the, in the medical center to prove that, you know, that he had enough strength in the arm. But really, is there anything in this world that compares to riding a 300 brake horsepower motorbike that you can do standing still? No, no, there isn't. Mm. No, there isn't. You yeah. Know, to be race fit, <laughs> you have to be in the race. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of that. Exactly. And as much as they can cycle and run and gym, uh, they've got to be race fit. And that's the same in any, any, any sport. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I was worried for him a little at the weekend. I didn't want to see somebody injured uh, permanently at such a young age for, for such a genius. Uh, we, we, we've yes. seen it in other sports and it's sad and it's heartbreaking. And I'm, I'm glad when I saw the news that he'd pulled out, I thought, you know what, that's fine. The wonders of modern technology will work their wonders between now and Bruno race three. Uh, but it, that's a different kettle of fish because yes. it'll be too... Three week, two weeks since he since he fell off the bike, um, but yeah, yeah. More importantly, I think it'll be two weeks post surgery, because that's the thing that, that complicates everything. A few people have said, you know, oh, no one's complaining that Alex Rins tried to ride at the weekend after undergoing a, a big uh, accident of his own, but he didn't go through surgery. And that changes everything, as far as I'm concerned. A general anaesthetic does mm. strange mm. things to the mm. body. However, we must not take away the fact that Fabio Quattararo, I mean, it's just just brilliant, isn't it? You watch him. He's 21 and a half years old. And here he is. (laughs) He's head of the championship. He's got 100% score in MotoGP for 2020. And he was born 
in the year of Valentino Rossi's second Grand Prix World Championship, 1999, when he won the when he won the 250s. I mean, I can't get my head around that, <laughs> or am I just an old what's it? I brilliant. It's a it's a fresh face. It was hotter than the sun there. Track temperature 63 <laughs> degrees. The Michelins would have been turning to putty. People were getting off the bike saying, I don't know how I did the last 14 laps, like Polis Bargaro. Other people pulled in the week before, like uh, Lekiona. Um, yeah. They were superhuman, all of yep. them, at the weekend for Jerez too. And yet, Quattararo, he'd just been for a jog around the block. Yeah. And we... <clears throat> we know he's fit, uh, but they're all fit, you know. But I think I think his huge advantage was he made a break at the start. He got away. He had clean, cold air being blasted on him at 200 miles an hour for the entire race because you listen to the people that struggled, really, really struggled, and they were people who spent the entire race stuck on someone else's back wheel, getting hot air pumped in their face. That's the, you know, you, you've got this circumstance where... The air temperature was already in the 40s. And then suddenly you're behind a, a Ducati with, you know, two exhaust pipes pumping 120 degree air out on top of you as well. And there's just no relief because the air temperature is nearly as hot. Um, so Quattararo's strategy of, of leading from the front, getting clear track, that was his saving grace. And I think when you look at Sunday's race and see how fresh Valentino Rossi was at the end of the race compared to Maverick Vinales, who spent most of the race behind him, that's exactly the same. Another hot race that we had in MotoGP was back in Barcelona in 2003. Loris Caparossi won it. Uh, the first Ducati victory in the MotoGP era. And there's a picture of him on the podium, but he's on his knees. He just can't even stand up. I mean, the Ducati in those days was another <laughs> animal. It sounded a million dollars. Yes. It was just fantastic. But it would burn the inside legs of of the pair of them, he and, and Troy Bayliss. And they mm-hmm. had some heat this and heat that. But it was a hot day in Spain in that, uh, that mid-June day it was. And Caparossi was yes. absolutely hanging. Another hot day that we had in uh, in Grand Prix motorcycle racing was a one-off Grand Prix that we had at Johor Bahru back in 1998, mid-April 1998. Um, I actually just looked up the results. I can't remember all the stats. And I'm amazed that the ground temperature was only 36 degrees for the race. I then went to qualifying and it doesn't give you the ground temperature for qualifying and practice for the Saturday and the Friday. But one of the other days, it was just unbelievable. But in the Grand Prix that day, it was very muggy, of course, because it was Malaysia. In the Grand Prix, there were only 13 finishers, just as there were at uh, at Hareth 2 that we've just had. You know, people were just in massive trouble, including uh, a friend of uh, friend of this podcast, Simon Crafar, who uh, had a bit of an off on the first lap, but that wasn't anything to do with the heat because he was used to racing in Malaysia in those days. But uh, <laughs> it course. was uh, it was just one of those races where you, you there was so much attrition, so much attrition, and a very tight, twisty racetrack as well. But uh, coming back to to 2020. Uh, Fabio Quattararo leads the World Championship 10 points ahead of Maverick Vinales and Quattararo is 24 points already ahead of third place man Andrea De Vizioso. That's nearly a win worth of points and he's only done two Grand Prix. I've never seen anything like that. (laughs) 
No, me neither. Not not to start the season and not in such a short season either. You know, we, we can say that he's got 50 points versus, uh, you know, his, his rivals. But not only that, he's also got, what's that, nearly 20% of the points on offer this season mm. already. Mm, mm, yes, yes, yes. Uh, two of the 13 Grand Prix that we have done already. So Vinales second in the championships, Vinales second in the Grand Prix, four and a half seconds back of Quattararo. He didn't really have a chance, did he? Quattararo had gone. Yeah. He uh Vinales didn't get the lightning start that he got the week before. He allowed Vinales to skip and I know that in the later stages of the race uh, Maverick got a little bit stuck behind breaking King Valentino Rossi and just couldn't get a pass on him. But even if he had got a pass, the way that the way that Vinales gets into whenever he gets clear track, he can click into a metronome, into a rhythm, and he's just uh, you know, no one can touch him in it. It is, for me, watching yesterday's race, very, very very reminiscent of watching Jorge Lorenzo go to work on the on the Yamaha as well. Totally, totally. And that battle that you alluded to between Vinales and Valentino Rossi. Valentino Rossi back on the podium since for the first time since the Circuit of the Americas last season. So when was that? April time. He's back on the podium. He looked a happy man. But it all starts to come out after the race that it sounds like even Valentino's very diplomatic wording of how he he explained what had happened in the previous week. Remember that the first race of the year, Rossi had an engine problem, a warning light came on, it killed the engine and he retired out of Jerez 1. And here he is, he's on the podium. Something's changed and he alluded to the fact that there has been quite a bit of politics going <laughs> on between, should we say, the garage and Japan. Can you expand on that? So... It's quite difficult to know exactly what was going on. It sounds a little bit reading between the lines, like maybe maybe Valentino's worth within the Yamaha team hasn't quite been listened to uh, the way it would have been a few years ago. You know, it's mm. worth remembering that he has went from being the factory rider to being a, just a satellite rider for next season. The guy that's going to replace him has just won two races on that satellite bike. And generally, satellite riders don't get a huge amount of input into development. So it could be that Yamaha were just, you know, painful as it sounds, doing what you'd expect them to do. But then you can never count out Rossi and the crew has around him. And it sounds like they just found something in the way that the Yamaha was set up. Something he alluded to going back to something they tried years ago. So they hit, they hit upon something and based on the improvements between race one and race two, it's something that's worth uh, worth working on from now on for mm. them. The way I, or so, no, not, not, not the way I read it, but the thing that popped into my mind when I read about that political kind of comment from Valentino was, you know, has Quattararo got something that Rossi hasn't? It's as simple as that, you know, with, with hardware, with metallurgy, with setup, with chassis, with whatever, just as we saw the... The, the the Patronus chassis going back to the works garage after Assen last year. Has that been fast-forwarded to race two rather than the middle of the season? I wonder. I know, I know, I know I'm think... putting you on the spot, Simon, and I apologise. Please, please, <laughs> I apologise. But we just have to sort of think out loud, don't we? Yeah, of course. And, and I don't think... I don't think anyone would begrudge that if it was the case within the Yamaha camp at the minute anyway. Because, you know, they we, we have 
moaned at times in the past few years that they haven't been very future thinking. They've been very focused in the here and now. And now that they have focused on the future, hired this amazing young talent, given him full factory machinery for this year to keep him sweet until he's on the factory bikes next year. You can't really blame them for supporting him in every way they can, can you? And that has to come at someone's expense. And given that Rossi's results in recent months and years haven't been anywhere near what Quattararo's has been, you know, it, it is almost just the way things work. And it certainly did work for Fabio Quattararo in the Grand Prix. Not only did he win it, but he did a race time 10 seconds quicker than Jerez won the week before. 10 seconds, which I know is a maybe irrelevant point to some of our listeners, but for the engineers, that's very interesting. On the hottest day that anybody can remember, the hottest Grand Prix possibly ever. I think I touched on it in our last podcast, Simon. It's not the uh, the Andalusian Grand Prix. It's the North African Grand Prix. <laughs> you know, it's not that far, <laughs> is it? Yeah, it's not that far. Whenever whenever you're on the motorway on the way into Hareth, you start hitting signs for buy your boat tickets to Tangiers here, <laughs> which is always a, a reminder that, yeah, it's really not that far. Coming back to Valentino Rossi, uh, the other thing that, uh, that that came through on Sunday was the fact that out of the five engines that these guys are allowed to utilise through the 13 Grand Prix season of 2020, Valentino is already on his fourth engine. Now, that, to me, is big news. That's really big news. You've only done two out of 13, and you've used up 80%, not used up, you're on the 80% of your five engines. Um, one of them has been withdrawn from the allocation, so it will not return, which was his first engine. He only used that uh, for part of race uh, the race weekend number one. And then two new engines for, uh, for this Hareth 2. Something's up there. Something is very, very wrong in the Yamaha camp. They obviously have engine problems. Obviously something isn't working right and they're burning through power plants, which is, you know, in this season with such a, a small allocation, it's a complete disaster. It's made even worse by the fact that we're going to three circuits next that are all about horsepower. And the, the normal way to deal with... Uh, an engine problem like this or a reliability problem is to cut the revs. If you cut the revs for the next three races, they're going to be nowhere, are they, at Red Bull Ring and Brno? Um, I've heard all sorts of rumours that the engine, at least one engine, is already back in Japan for analysis. The one that Vinales had blow up on them or, or stop working because they don't really blow up anymore in FP3 last week. It's already back in Iwata for analysis. There are some rumours floating around, very, very good news for them, that the problem isn't actually an engine part, it's a sensor uh, that's that's sending bad info and that that's what's causing the problems, which would be fantastic because obviously you can change a sensor without opening a sealed engine. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something we've seen before. Do you remember a few years ago, Rossi had the, the spectacular blow-up at Mugello uh, yeah. while, while right at the front of the race. That came from the ECU software not being written properly and whenever the bumps at Mugello kicked the back wheel off the ground, the rev limiter didn't come into effect and the engine over-revved and blew itself up. So not every engine problem these days comes from the engine and Yamaha will have uh, fingers, toes, everything crossed at the minute that this is something they can address before next week with an easy solution without having to start worry about pit lane starts if they have to start uh, 
homologating more engines. Yeah, putting putting a sixth engine into the allocation, yeah. I hear what you say about Mugello. If I could be a nitpicker, if they didn't write the software right and it did over-rev, well, pff, it's part of the game, isn't it, you know? Oh, yeah, 100%, 100%. But it's just an example of... It is part of the game. It's just an example of not all these things... Just because an engine explodes and blows smoke out doesn't necessarily mean it's an engine problem. Yeah. Franco Morbidelli, he, he lost an engine similar to the uh, problem that Valentino had the uh, the week before. So, mm, three Yamaha engine failures out of the four riders in two Grand Prix. Uh, Fabio Quattararo must be the man looking over <laughs> his shoulder thinking, hmm, have you screwed the plugs in, guys? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, whilst we're on smoke and things going wrong, that rather frightening moment with Francesco Bagnaia, who was up into a podium position with his Pramac Ducati, smoke coming out for two laps. Yeah. I was terrified for him. Uh, Nakagami said after the race, he was terrified for himself because he was following him and he was waiting for things to spew its guts everywhere. And of course, Nakagami would have been next on the yep. scene and straight to hospital. Absolutely. Uh, very, very strong words last night from Taka, who is, you know... Um, Without saying he's a soft soul, yeah. Without calling him stereotypically Japanese, he's uh, he's not one to kick up waves. That's generally left for the other side of the LCR Honda garage, and Mister Crutchlow. <laughs> um, but for Taka to come out so strongly last night against race control was um, pretty damning evidence of just how frightened he was. You know, because that's generally why riders go on the war path against the uh, upper levels of the championship. It's either fear or money, isn't it? Um, he mm. he said he spent two laps waiting for the black flag that never appeared, thinking every corner I'm going to crash here, but not being able to stop pushing because that's, you know, it's mm. just not an eraser instinct to pull over, is it? Mm, not at all. It was, uh, you yeah, know, two laps around that place is, uh, is what? Is one four? It's, it's nearly 200 seconds. But two, yeah, it is. But so yeah, two and a half minutes. It's uh, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a poor show. I thought uh, you asked race control for a comment, and it was a no comment. Yes, it was indeed. <laughs> I think you knew the answer to that question when you asked it. Yeah, but you always have to ask these things, don't you? Yeah, yeah. No, you did the right thing. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. Uh, In their defence, we. Uh, we asked them for a comment last week about yellow flags being ignored. They said no comment. And then four days later announced a massive revamp of the yellow flag procedure. So they do pay attention at least. There you go. Sometimes us journalists, we're right. Not all the time, but some of the time. Yeah, I used to do that with Livio Supo when he was at Ducati. Uh, a couple of times we had a bit of a blue. And I'd poke him in the shoulder and I'd go, most of the time, mate, you're right. This time... I'm right. And off we'd go, and off we'd go, and then we'd be, <laughs> then we'd be having, a, having a drink in the evening. But uh, yeah, yeah, not all the time. Um, yeah, Nakagami, great result. He, of course, the leading light for Honda. Who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought it? But it sounds like, reading between the lines again, it sounds like Tak is getting a lot more attention within Honda because he's the fittest rider they have. It sounds like the engineers have spent a lot of time in his garage explaining Mark Marquez's data to him in more detail than he's ever had it explained to him before. And suddenly he's realised that while Mark is incredibly talented, he's also got a riding style that suits the Honda and that's something Taka can copy. 
And that's what he spent all weekend doing, trying to ride the bike like Marc Marquez. And, oh, look, suddenly he's P4 and fighting for a podium. Well, it's his career best. and uh... Yeah, by a long way. His previous best was a fifth in a torrentially wet Valencia a few years ago. Mm. Final mm. round. Juan Mir back on the bike after he looped it the week before. Fifth position for Suzuki. We've all got a kind of soft spot for Suzuki, haven't we? Because there's only two of them and we of sense course. that they're an underdog and they haven't got all the money in the world at Hamamatsu. Um, I think Rins is a superstar, full stop. Those victories that he's done are just real racist victory in, victories in the past. Kota and Silverstone <laughs> and such like. Mir's always been uh, hot stuff on a bike and there he is in fifth position. Strangely, uh, I, I rate, obviously rate uh, Rins. It's very hard not to. He's a double race winner. He's showing that he's very, very fast. But for me, the real superstar inside that team is one Mir. I think there's something very, very special about him that we haven't had a chance to see yet. Uh, Suzuki went to Hareth knowing that they were going to hate it, that they were going to struggle, that the bike wouldn't work very well in the heat, that it wasn't their sort of track. Um, but they're quietly confident about some rounds later in the year and about you know having having the chance to show exactly what they can do. If we get to the end of the season... Well, no... If we'd gotten to the end of the season with everyone fit and healthy and Mir had been ahead of Rins in the championship, I wouldn't have been at all surprised. Now, with Rins missing race one and being injured for race two, I would fully expect Mir to beat him in the championship. Sure, sure. What happened to Ducati? What's going on? That's a good question. And uh, I feel like if we knew the answer to it, we could probably sell it to Gigi Delinia at this point. <laughs> they just cannot get that new Michelin rear tyre working for them the way they they wanted to. Um, it seems like they've made a bit of a breakthrough. Uh, it seems like some of the riding styles within Ducati suit the bike a lot more than some others, Andrea De Vizioso. Um And we've seen, you know, stellar performance at the weekend from Peko Bagnaia. Got it he didn't get in the podium after a mechanical problem that he fully, fully deserved. Uh, but Dovi's just, you know, he can't make the bike work the way that, that Bagnaya and Miller can. He can't get the bike to turn into the corners. And part of me thinks that, you know, this is very, very bad news for someone that's currently fighting not only for a championship, but for a contract for 2021. Mm, quite, quite. Uh, KTM. Well, it was all nearly over. By the time they got to the first corner, what a qualifying position from Miguel Oliveira. Fifth on Saturday afternoon. Brad Binder in the works KTM team, as it were, outside of the third row in ninth position. Paul Espargaro, a bit of a disappointing Saturday afternoon, but he was 12th. He could pull something out of the hat. And then we had uh, Miguel Oliveira punted out at the first corner by Brad Binder. Of course, it's a mistake, but oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, I think things won't be too unhappy in the KTM camp because when you go back and have a look at the replay, um, I have to admit I had to go back for a second look. Really not Binder's fault. Uh, Danilo Petrucci gave him a good nudge before he gave Oliveira a oh, nudge. Okay, I'm so sorry. I it's, it's very I much one that can be chucked down to race an incident. Yep. And uh, hopefully, it, you know, there's a bit of a fiery relationship already between Oliveira and Binder, but hopefully that's not one that um, ignites it too much 
uh, given that that it was really just a turn one racing incident that you can't really blame anyone for because people just happened to be where they were. You know, that's just the way it works sometimes, isn't it? Okay, hand on heart, I take that back. I looked at the replay again, but I didn't see the Petrucci into Binder moment. I'd, I'd missed yeah. that. I'd missed that. I'm sorry. It's so, it's it's quite subtle. I wouldn't. It took me a few watches. Don't worry. Okay, okay. Paul then clawed his way back up the order uh, to seventh position. So yep, get out of jail free. Another one who said it was just ridiculously hot. His brother in my book, made a bit of a horlicks of those first two Grand Prix. You've got to finish the bloody race. And he binned it twice. Don't You've got you to just... get the data. You've got to get yeah. the data. And he's got Neil Poin. Um, frustrated indeed he may be. He's a team leader. He wears his heart on his sleeve. But unfortunately, in my book, binning it, again, is, is not what Aprilia need at the moment when they're trying to come through. Yeah. Aprilia's problem at the minute is their bike is exceptionally good going into the corner. It's so, so stable on the braking and it's they're able to really, really take the benefit out of corner entry, which, as an aside, is why I really can't wait to see Cal Crutchlow on it next year because that's where he's very strong as well. And I think the combination of the two is going to be very, very interesting. But what that means on a day like yesterday where it's super, super hot is that you're trying to make up time on the most risky part of the racetrack. And that's where it went wrong for Alish. Unfortunately, he both weekends, he was just trying too hard to make up the time that they were losing everywhere else on that corner entry. And inevitably, when it's, you know, when conditions are basically like pouring rain, because in that heat, it's just as slippery, the front tire will very easily decide it doesn't want to be uh, your friend anymore. Not at all. Not at all. So, um, we could go on, we could go on and analyse every single lap and everything. Uh, we've touched on Carol Crutchlow, um, uh, Johan Zarco, another quick mention, you know, top 10 for him, ninth position as he tries to rebuild his career after beyond disastrous 2019. He's on that <laughs> Ducati. Um, they've seen something that we haven't. He was 23 seconds back of Fabio Quattararo. He was reasonably happy with it. I don't think it was PRBS from Zarco, I think he was. No. Yeah, he genuinely seemed to be quite chuffed with his weekend. Um, I think he was very much of the opinion that his race result didn't really reflect his uh, his potential for the weekend and the steps they made. But, you know, he's, he's got to be thinking, like a lot of the Ducati riders, let's get through two races at Jerez in the heat. Let's just, you know, suck it and see. And then we've got two races at the Red Bull Ring. Mm. And that's where people are going to show their, their real ability on the Ducati. So a weekend off for the MotoGP guys before Bruno and then two Spielbergs back to back. So a trio of races, those two race circuits not far away from each other. On a more business kind of conversation, Simon, where are things at with the MotoGP guys letting the press in? Because I saw photographers <laughs> at the racetrack, but where do you think things are at with letting the press corps in? At least some of them. So what we all we know so far is what the situation is for Bruno. And right now that's going to be more team personnel allowed in, more photographers allowed in, more staff allowed in, and still zero media allowed in. Uh, no plans whatsoever to make any changes for the next round. And beyond that, we still don't know because communication isn't 
the most forthcoming from inside Dorna sometimes. Um, yeah, not ideal. Not ideal. It is definitely making work difficult. It's making life difficult. And it's it's preventing us from getting information. You know, uh, I, I spent yesterday afternoon trying to chase down the Yamaha press officer to see if I could get a few minutes with either Mayo Marigali or Lynn Jarvis for very obvious reasons. And they both said, oh, they don't have time to come to the media centre, you know, to do a Zoom chat, whatever. Whereas you and I both know on a normal race weekend, you just swing down the back of the garage, you wait until one of them walk past, you say, ah, Lynn, is there any chance of two seconds? And you stick a microphone under his nose before he's got a chance to say no. We're losing the ability to do all mm. that sort of thing um, to get those quotes and to get that information. Yes, it is a shame. It is a shame. But... Close your ears now for a moment, Simon. Simon's doing a super job on the-race.com. Uh, he's working with some colleagues to get it all together with the guys in the back office there. So uh, you, you're doing pretty well. You're doing pretty well. Fair play. Uh, now you can open your ears. <laughs> so um, keep in touch with the-race.com for all of the latest MotoGP and Formula One news in the world of international motorsport do like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from simon's going to be driving up from northern spain across to Brno over the next week or so and we will be catching back up with him uh, when he's in central europe so uh, take care and enjoy yourself in the meantime mate thank you very much thank you for the kind words and uh yeah good to catch up as always in the meantime, from myself, Toby Moody, Simon Patterson, and all at the-race.com, take care. Goodbye for now.